Welcome to the Upriser podcast. I'm your host, Clinton Bonner. Upriser focuses on technology conversations centered in the future of work and how new technologies are applied and how work evolves. The Upriser podcast is brought to you by Topcoder. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Upriser podcast. I'm your host, Clinton Bonner. Very, very excited to talk to uh, to an awesome woman today, uh, Marnie Baker-Stein. She's the provost and chief academic officer for Western Governors University. She has more than 20 years of experience in developing and implementing and evaluating innovation for higher ed programs and curricula. And really, a lot of what she's been focusing on is the, the, the blended, the, the virtual with, with the physical, and then now really moving into the, into the realm of, of skills-based education and skills-based uh, promotion of individuals and talent. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. So it, it's, a, it's an absolute pleasure to bring her to the podcast. Marty, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's going to be going to be. I think it's going to be an awesome topic. I got to know a little bit about uh, the Open Skills Network. We'll refer to it as OSN, and you know, throughout. So if you kind of get the legend in your brain, Open Skills Network OSN, um, and just you know, understanding like why it was created and and who it was created for, and really the benefits that we believe can can be achieved for like kind of all sides of the marketplace if the talent landscape and the kind of the mindset shifts over to kind of skills-based hiring and skills-based assessments rather than, you know, traditional, uh, maybe traditional roles and things of that nature. And we'll get into all that. We'll get into all that, that great stuff. And to do so effectively, I think it'd be really good to give folks like a foundational understanding of, well, who the heck are you? <laughs> you know, like, who are you? What, what drives you? What are you doing? And I always like to give a little bit of a, I say I'm a big, you know, comic book nerd. Uh, my dad owned a comic book store when I was like 10, 11, 12 years old. So I was really into comics. Um, so a good origin story, I think, helps set the base and give people a, an understanding <laughs> of, you know, why they should care, right? Um, and so when I, you know, I do a little sleuth and a little Columbo style, maybe Matt Lockett, if you will. And of course, that means I go on people's LinkedIn profiles before we talk and then say, okay, what, what, can I, what can I dig out here that I think is a, a fun nook or cranny to really dive into? So we're going to be discussing um, you know, higher ed and, and education in blended environments and, they get, and then in virtual environments. What stood out to me, Marty, when I looked back at your, your, your experience was that 22 years ago, you were, uh, you were tackling distance learning at UPenn. Uh, I, I think you were director of distance learning at UPenn. So what, this is 1998. This is a law, that's a, you know, that's not, not to make you or I feel old. That's a long time ago now. What was the state of distance learning in 1998? What was going through thought leaders' heads and kind of planning for a future state? And, uh, you know, give if you can give some ideas of how much did you get right? How much changed so dramatically? I think it'd be really cool to understand. Sure. So I would just go a little bit, a few years earlier than that yeah, is when ahead. it really started. And I was at um, University of California, Santa Barbara Extension. And it was it was right after, you know, the first web browsers came out. So there was Mosaic and then there was Netscape. Oh, yeah. And the first kind of HTML editors came out. And the 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 origins of distance learning were really were right then. Amazon was just starting, you know, they, they had their bookstore and, and oh my gosh, it was like, it was just like the whole world had turned upside down. It really was in terms of access to information and this notion that you could create really powerful information packed uh, beautiful learning experiences that you could create with an HTML editor and like beam out to the world. I mean, it was very heady moment, and we started with um, writing courses, the and um, webmaster webmaster certificates, <laughs> and and uh, and I really got hooked because I could see the impact that we were able to have on making education more affordable, more accessible, and more just in time. We weren't, we weren't relying on publishers to come out with learning materials. We could actually create really cool learning experiences 
uh, on a flat website, but we thought it was cool with links, which we thought were amazing. Sure. Um, and and when I went to Penn, um, you know, it was clear that this could be much more than a webmaster certificate. That we could actually construct programs that were accessible globally, and we could create global cohorts of learners and solvers who would come together around these amazing topics like sustainability management or uh, resilience, positive psychology. Um, and uh, in, our, in our effort was, okay, so we have this ability to do this. We have this ability to gather these learning cohorts around this amazing content from these amazing world-class experts at Penn. And um, we also have the ability to drive social interaction and teamwork and kind of global problem solving um, at a scale that we could never do if we were requiring people to come to Philadelphia, right? Yep. <laughs> so we had, we had this one program where it was all problem-based. It was on sustainability management. And the, the, the solver teams were from... Um, Ritsumeikan in Japan, uh, a big Kyunghee University in Korea, um, uh, different universities in China and across the world. And we put these students in these solver cohorts around sustainability management. And it was led by faculty from all over the world. And it was super powerful. And and we began to realize, you know, even at that time, this, this narrative still goes on. Oh, mm -hmm. online is great for self-study. We learned exactly the opposite at Penn, mm -hmm. that online was actually great for creating connected, global learning communities and solver communities that could really dive into topics contextually um, that we just could not accomplish in a classroom where everybody was sitting together, but they weren't necessarily thinking and working and solving together. So that's what we learned at Penn. Um, of course, you know, that the technology uh, and our capabilities were were rough, um, but the, the key elements of a powerful learning experience that was digital and that was native in its in its digital format um, and ambitious in its digital format. Um, that was definitely there in 1998 through early 2000s when we were doing the work at, at Penn. Um, yeah. And we had, yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think there's a couple of things that come up for me there that are just, there's, there's super... I, either analogous or kind of like we're running in parallel history-wise, you know, before, uh, and, and obviously it's the first time we've had an uh, extensive conversation, but it's it's just neat to kind of think about what else was happening at that time. And um, one of the things that comes up for me is that while you're doing this in 98 and you're realizing, heck, this is actually more about collaboration and problem solving and just getting a, a much more diverse net cast because technology now enables it, right? And it, and yeah. now, 22 years later, it's kind of like, oh, duh. But like at yeah. that point, it was it was such it was such out of the box maneuvering and thinking that that was even possible, or or that it would even be a consequence of the technology, you know, being used. It was it was a beautiful consequence of it. And the the parallel for me is that uh, you might not know the the top coder history. Uh, however, it was about 1999 when the founder of Top Coder. Uh, sold off a traditional um, services company. He got it to a certain size and was like, hey, he was just seeing slippage. He was like, I can't grow. It was Northeast based. It's like, I can't grow it any further without basically, you know, potentially disappointing the next customer, the next customer, the next customer, because he just couldn't yeah. hire fast enough. And this is like 1999. So, you know, sold the company and then spent the next couple of years um, getting ready for uh, the Top Coder community, which launched in 2001. But that was yeah. from Jump Street about like, about the things you just honed in on, about collaboration, about opening up really tough problems to a global network, and then just frankly being surprised where they take you. You know, so it's right. uh, it, there's some some cool things there. And the other one that came up for me too, while you were talking, like you know, hey, the technology might have been rough, but I also think about like early video games when I was a kid. So my brother's five years older. I'm 42, so I was still jamming on like Atari 2600, ColecoVision, mm -hmm. and NES. You know, it's like, yeah, it might have been rough, Atari 2600, but a it was amazing to me, <laughs> you know, like yeah. that, was, that was the only time I could play a game inside my house. I didn't, you know, that was not available yet. Um, so I think we, we end up 
I think we end up like looking back on some of those early things a little more harshly than realizing in the moment just how revolutionary it was and what had and why it was impactful. Because like you said, while some of the tech might have been rough, the the epicenter of what was possible with it was already kind of bursting through. And that that's super cool for me. Yeah, I I I would agree with all of that. I think what was really exciting about the time is the problems we were trying to solve were super clear in our mind. Mm. And and the tech, the emerging tech was so exciting. Um, that we got, we could get really creative in wielding it. I think sometimes now the tech is so amazing that the problems to be solved get lost in the in the weeds. Mm, I, lo- tech, I love that point. I love tech, that. Point. Tech, tech is driving it more than the than the actual human problems that we're trying to solve with tech. Um, I think getting that balance right into the future is going to be really important for all of us. That's a, that's a, such a, a salient point for me too, because, you know, I could, I know what I know, right? So my world is top coder uh, when it comes to, and of course, open innovation and crowdsourcing for, you know, for me, for me personally, 12 plus years now. However, with, with, you know, my experiences, it's, especially in the heart and the complex stuff, not, not like, Hey, didactic, go code this, this way. That's great. There's, there's awesome mm-hmm. talent out there. And the platform could, you know, platforms out there, including Topcoder and others, they're really good for that because you could you could uh, disseminate it and it could be uh, kind of like micro bursts of work uh, and and really contained. It makes a lot of sense. The when it starts to get to the, um, you know, the, the versus the, the subjective side of, of problem solving, and in, in our world, what's what's kind of uh, again a parallel is that's our realm of data science, where you've got hardcore data scientists coming in. But it's really about the problem formation. It is, it is about spending, if need be, weeks on really formatting the right problem to go solve and really poking at, is that what you really want to go solve for? Or is there something beneath that that actually is more core to, the, to you getting this right, if it's like a predictive analytics problem or something like that? And then why it's not, you know, uh, why it is still subjective in one way is because the approaches that come from the talent are are really, really wide. Even though they're doing math problems, the thought process of like digesting a good problem and then kind of going to your neutral corner and working on it to say, I'm going to approach it this way. And then you get this burst of say 12, 20, 30, 40 different humans coming at it. And then you get what you get. You get a superset and lo and behold, one, two, three of them stand out and knock it out of the park and routinely out of domain. (laughs) They didn't even need domain. They just had a take what they already knew and apply it a different way. And it really is just, it always, always continues to knock my socks off. So that's another one that came up for me too. While you were talking about that is problem definition, as good as technology can be and as good as technology will continue to get. um, If you don't spend time highly defining a problem for distributed uh, folks to work on it, you could have all the tech in the world. You're still not going to get a great outcome in my opinion. That's, I totally agree with you. I aim into that. Awesome. Very cool. So, you know, I, I do want to not hit, hit a fast forward button so much because I don't want to overlook other, other parts of your, of your career, which it's, you know, from an academia standpoint and other ways, it, hey, go people, go hit, go hit her LinkedIn page. It's, pretty, it's a pretty cool journey. Um, but I do want to get a little bit of like closer to now. And so, you, you know, you went from what I would call traditional academia. You mentioned a bunch of those places already. There was Columbia, there was UPenn, there was uh, UC, I think it was Santa Barbara, if, if, I, if I heard it correctly. And then a couple of years ago, you went into the, I would say, the more full realm of online universities with Western Governors, Western Governors University. So what was the, the catalyst for the, it, it seems to me things led up or you were, were always blended and really focused on digital and the understanding of that stuff. What was the leap for you? Like, why, why was it time to go, I'm going to go full in with, with Western Governors, which isn't fully online university? Sure. Well, I think I've, I've always believed that digital is powerful, not only because it allows us to expand access in these incredibly uh, global and um, rich uh, ways, but uh, it's also powerful because it can be incredibly granular and personalized. And so, as I was working with digital um, education at Columbia and Penn, my main focus was was like, wow! Not only can we globalize our learning communities, we can exponentially move the dial for student success for every student. Mm. 
for every student, not just the elite students coming into Penn and Columbia who have perfect GPAs and perfect SAT scores, but for every resilient, smart, gritty student out there who was born into a zip code where they didn't have access to the best education, but they have everything they need to knock it out of the park, if they can get the kind of personalized support they need um, to make up for gaps and to understand their talents. And so I had gone to the University of Texas system and I led uh, the Institute for Transformational Learning. And the work that we were doing there was essentially granularizing pathways into skills. So biomedical biomedical health sciences pathways. Um, We did a skills map for four different, um, basically middle school to medical school journeys. Um, uh, we did a massive skills map for cybersecurity to understand cyber and all of its context and all the skills that you needed to build to do that very well. Um, and that, that is a very complicated field. And, and that, that work, when we applied that in curriculum as well as in technology, um, we saw how powerful it was for every student regardless of their starting point. And so a couple of years ago when Scott Pulsifer, who is the president and CEO of Western Governors University, kind of got wind of what we were doing and invited me to come to Western Governors University, um, I did it. Uh, It was a big leap for me. A lot of people questioned it, frankly, at the time uh, because of a sort of native snobbery that comes. (laughs) (laughs) The ivory ivory high tower that comes with... uh, Yes, yeah. academia elite. We, it, yeah. is, it is what it is. It's out there. And if we pretend like it's not real, we're, we're doing ourselves a disservice. Yeah, right. So, so uh, but I did it because WGU's core intent, their whole mission is to drive the digital transformation of learner, learning to bring every learner that's out there, every talented kid or or adults who's out there to the opportunity that's also out there um, by rethinking from the ground up how education is organized. Uh, And I thought, you know, I've had a great experience at all these places. They were all wonderful places, but that was not their mission. And digital education and online education was always on the the margins Mm. of of their compact, really, which was that on-ground campus-based experience. Um, so I really wanted to take all the work and learning to a place where it was central to to their mission. And that's why I went to Western Governors University. And um, I was super excited about Western Governors University, not just because they're online. I mean, that that that's cool, um, but also because they're competency-based. Mm. And for me, that mission for competency-based education, understanding learning pathways as, you know, traverses across sets of skills and competencies that lead to mastery and really understanding what mastery means and how we get more people to mastery through a personalized approach. That was like thrilling to me um, and a big reason why I, why I joined. I love it. I love that. Again, I'm a sucker for, for this, this, the, the backstory. And, you know, while I took a note here, you kind of remind me, and I hope this, I hope this comes as a compliment because it certainly is, but it's uh, of, of Patrick Stewart, the actor, right? So Patrick, <laughs> Patrick Stewart took a lot of heat when he took on the role of Jean-Luc Picard, right? He was, he was a very known, he was a thespian. He was known as, as a, a, a theater man and, and, and a darn, obviously a darn good one. Yeah. And he took the role and said, you know what, I'm going to go be captain of the Enterprise. And he took a lot of flack uh, mm-hmm. until, until he didn't, right? Until he was uh, the legend that he, that he now is for so many, so many more millions of people. And again, the, the parallelisms of the fact that, you know, with the, the saying, of course, uh, you know, talent is distributed and opportunity often is not. And all these, all these elements uh, help to just kind of continuously and more and more rapidly, which is fantastic, erode those barriers so that they could ultimately collapse and then work and opportunity can be distributed no matter where the heck you're, where the heck you're coming from, you know? And again, but I love the fact that you pointed out it's got to be met with the individual passion and the grit and the wherewithal to go do it. You know, if, if you're, if you, if you think it's going to be handed to you as an individual, just because the opportunity is there now, well, guess what? The opportunity is there for everybody now. So you got to hustle, <laughs> you know, it's time for you to hustle like Russell and get your grid on, but take the advantage of the fact that you, 
that the opportunity is actually there now that you can go uh, better yourself through through these kind of means, which um, sometimes I think gets left out of the equation. I think some people just think you open the opportunity and, and blammo, it's just going to happen, but it's got to be met by individual effort. And uh, so I, I wonder if there's anything you want to extrapolate there. Like how does, how does like WGU maybe reinforce that or, or help prepare individuals to truly take advantage? Yeah, well, I guess this is where the origin story for the OSN begins, the Open Perfect. Skills Network begins, awesome. because um, at WGU, um, like I said, when we say we're competency-based education, I mean, we say that and people people's eyes glaze over. It's like, oh, <laughs> well, like what the heck does that mean? Um, and what that has always meant is we don't want to spend a lot of time covering core curriculum or syllabi that have expanded over the years and really are, they're stuffed full of interesting things, but they're not things that are absolutely necessary for you to gain mastery in X and go out and get a job or build a career um, in X, right? And so we have always designed our programs, which have historically been degree programs primarily. Um, that's, that's starting to change, but historically that's the truth. And, um, we would work with industry really closely. Uh, we had industry councils, we had HR leaders from industry, we had industry subject matter experts, we had academic subject matter experts, you know, defining the competencies that lead to mastery in attack and defense for cybersecurity or for um, teaching classroom management for teachers college. What are those skills and competencies that allow you to do those things and do that well? Straight from the hiring officers and the industries and the sectors that are looking for those those competencies in their job descriptions. And that that we've done for years. And it was a, a highly manual process of doing that. And it was very difficult and expensive to keep it current because a lot of these fields, especially the tech fields, are changing quarter over quarter in terms of the competencies they require. And of course, they're enduring things that you require, but they're also technical professional proficiencies that that are changing. It just was really hard. Um, And when we looked at our competency statements, and this may be a little wonky, but it's an important part of the statement, they were really, like, it looked, you could actually see that different people wrote these competency statements. Um, There was no real standard format. Further, they were not machine readable. They were stuck in, you know, Excel files and Microsoft Word docs in some cases. And, and when, when I came kind of bringing all the skills mapping work that we were doing in Texas, I was like, you know, let's, let's figure out a new way that can be scalable, that can be automated, that can be shareable, that can be more dynamic, that can be more tagged to real market intelligence so that we can kind of see when markets shift, like we could almost see our, our skill sets lighting up or dimming down <laughs> based on that shift. Um, and so a couple of years ago, we started a skills architecture team and all they think about and all they do is, is they work with the top kind of skills ontology experts in the country, um, third-party labor insight providers like MZ, um, ONAT, um, folks from different licensing boards, folks from different professional associations to figure out what a skill is and how we can tag it to real-time intelligence about the demand for those skills in the market. And we're so serious about that. We don't just want to know the aggregate intelligence. We want to know the geolocated intelligence of those. Where are those skills in demand? And so that led to something called a rich skills descriptor which is kind of like a standard approach to writing skills and tagging it to intelligence sources. We started going out. We realized as we were talking to people, wow, we're not the only folks doing this. There are other big universities doing this, like Southern New Hampshire University, University of North Texas. There are big employers doing this, like Walmart and IBM. There are big um, HR people and talent systems doing this, like Workday. Mm -hmm. Obviously, LinkedIn does this work. and, and we were all, once we started talking to them, you know, of course we thought, oh, well, they must have it figured out. You know, they've, they've got the big guns. They are really, <laughs> they've got it all together. And we realized they were doing it the same way we were. They were struggling with the same things we were. Yeah. 
Uh, and so that was the origin of this group that we originally called the Open Skills Stack Alliance that came together um, to figure out a couple of things, which is how do we extract the skills data that's already out there um, on the interwebs and beyond? How do we extract that into a machine readable format? How do we create, make it easier for individuals who are writing contextualized rich skills descriptions, how do we, or institutions, how do we make it easier to author those um, and document them and store them and curate them? And then um, finally, how do we make it easy for them to publish them in different formats um, and encourage them to share them openly um, yeah. through open skills libraries? And so that's that. That's how the Open Skills Network began with few groups that we like to call skills warriors. Um, and um, boy, uh, it started to, to grow and grow from there. Yeah, that, that's, I, and it's the, the part that really stands out for me, which I didn't know until, we, until just now getting this digest from you, is the, is the real focus. We talked about it earlier. And again, it's, it's all about the parallels for me, but like, the focus on skills architecture, like from Jump Street, that like if you didn't have it where AI could then support it later and ML could really, like you said, read these things and power and architecture uh, that allows for scale, then you would just be perpetually at kind of a square one or a square two and not be able to get that one, two, four, 16, you know, and that, the exponential track that you can get because you're setting this up for scale, because you're, you're really focused on the architecture of how do you continuously define these skills. And like you said, then, and then just power, use AI to your advantage. So I'm, I'm, I'm enthralled by, by it so far. If you had the, if uh, one thing first is, um, what's the website? It's, it's openskillsnetwork. It's openskillsnetwork.org. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. So I do definitely encourage folks to go there just to check it out. Um, and if you had the, the the 30 second elevator pitch on why it exists, take longer if you want, that's okay. Um, but like, but you know, you obviously led up to this with a lot of your, your career path and, and, and the great uh, discussion of going over to, uh, to WGU and why that was important um, and kind of rotating or the continual evolution of really making things skills, skills based and be able to measure those things. Um, but why does it exist and who, does it, who is it meant to serve? So if we peel back the onion to the core, the reason it exists is that, um, is that our current educational system is not effective at, in really agile, powerful ways, moving uh, the diverse talent that's out there everywhere where to, to opportunity. You know, it's kind of set up. Um, it's kind of set up to filter people out mm. rather than filter people in um, by design. And oh, I'm sorry. Not I'm, I. I love that as a as as a, for me, it's enough of a macro to kind of jump off and and, and to go to get to the next uh, for me the next question, which yeah. is, you know, a big proponent of if you're, if you're at the website is this discussion that you're having that, hey, this is actually good for all sides. And yeah. just to kind of describe that real quickly, we're talking about the individual talents, the folks who are the, the labor of the talent. We're talking about employers who want to yeah. access and tap and be able to use this talent. And we're also talking in, in this particular case about the, the, the government behind it. In this, in this case, the U.S. government. Um, yeah. It's very, it's, I think it's more and more frequent, which is a great thing, but I still think it's a hard thing to hit the right uh, tone so that you really truly are beneficial to kind of all sides of your marketplace. Right. How, do, how does this, how is OSN shaped up to do so? Like, and if you want to walk through, you know, sure. uh, the, the, the sure. pillars, so, that'd be great. So I guess the second level of why is, you know, and in, in the kind of what we're trying to accomplish is, we believe the solution to social and economic mobility in this country, which is a moral imperative, uh, both for individuals as well as for uh, states who are who are um, who are driving the the social and economic mobility of their states and their regions, um, 
then we believe skills-based education and skills-based hiring is um, is uh, a route to enable and accelerate that effort. Um, and so for, for individuals, as I'm building my credential and skills profile, because we don't believe credentials are going to go away, mm-hmm. um, those skills, if tagged to um, geolocated um, demand, employer demand, allow me as an individual to be empowered to understand what my current profile um, is valued at in, my, in the, the um, employment marketplace around me. Um, and to also understand what my gaps are so that if I really want to go in a certain direction toward a job or toward a career that is in my zip code or a zip code where I want to live and work, um, I know how to get there. For for employers, um, employers who are in a particular um, uh, zip code or who are looking for a particular diverse talent from that region or from across the country, they often can't see it. The only signal that they have had is the degree and the degree is often not the best signal for readiness um, for a particular job where, where skills are much more, um, a much more insightful and I think trustworthy um, a beacon or a signal yeah. for readiness. Um, they've been kind of stuck with degrees because that's all there has been. Um, and so for employers, it allows them to, I'm sure they're still going to use degrees. I'm sure that's credential is going to be around for a while, but to really have other signals that allow them to understand the talent that's out there in front of them and really grow and, and diversify, diversify, um, their workforce in ways that we are very hopeful and they're very hopeful are going to be more equitable, and for, for governments, whether it's the federal government or the state government, you know, their job is to figure out how to, their job is, well, according to Marnie Baker's sign, is to figure <laughs> out how to grow and nurture um, the, the possibilities and the opportunities in their region. Um, and having access to um, talent side data around skills and credentials, having access to employer-side demand for skills and credentials allows them more intelligence to figure out how do we build the infrastructure in this state or this region to to create better bridges for that talent as well as to, to drive the development of more talent for that employer demand. Like, what do we need to do? How do we need to work with higher education or community colleges or secondary institutions or training institutions or whatever, other services, um, to, to sort of create a, an environment that will, that will thrive um, synergistically? So all, all stakeholders are in a position to receive value from this work. Um, the Open Skills Network is interesting because all stakeholders are represented. <laughs> Uh, so we have strong representation from from higher ed, but also from uh, small, medium, and very large sized companies. We have the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has been very involved with their talent pipeline initiative. Organizations like Skillful, which are um, uh, kind of compassing organizations for career services, um, the U.S. Air Force, um, and everyone in between. And what I think is so exciting about it is that this is a time that I can't remember in my experience when all of those interests are circling around a common problem to be solved. Yeah. Yeah. And working together to try to, to, to try to solve it. And it's surely early days, but I've never seen that kind of coherence before. And it's truly, um, I think it's promising. Yeah. I, I, I love how you laid that out. And the, the, the element that I picked up uh, that I want to dive into a little bit more is, is the idea of the traditional degree. And like you said, you've got this, um, you know, you've a, a bit of a perfect storm, right, is what it is. Like this, this, the, the three different sides all recognizing the benefit and saying, well, and, and also, you know, probably coming to the conclusions of, well, you know, it just, it just makes sense. We can, we, can, we can operate this way now and it's going to be better if we get there. Um, and the, uh, the, the, I wouldn't call it a fourth leg, but I would say there's um, additional good pressure from the celebrities, from like Elon Musk, 
going out there and saying, you know, uh, you, you can have a degree. That's fine. I, I'm not that interested. It, like, that's good. And not to poo-poo traditional education. Obviously, you've been there. I, I have my degree. Um, and I'm saving for my kids 529s. You know? so, it's right. not like, so it's not like, I, but I also tell my kids, hey, you want that money to go start a business? Come up with a business plan. You know, and they're 13 and we'll, we'll be 10 uh, next month. So, um, so I'm not, you know, whereas 10 years ago, I'd be like, no, you have to do this. But now right. the Elon Musk's of the world and IBM and other large corporations saying, now we're going we're gonna to at least open the, open the aperture to uh, hire differently. And it's, for me, it's, it's got to be skills-based at that point because it's, we're talking about you know, uh, very, very niche work and, and high technology and high skill work uh, where it suits. It suits very well. Um, do you have any particular... Do you have any like uh, public partners that are around that are kind of like that, that are almost like the celebrity status or someone that's like in, in the limelight a, a lot that is a champion of, uh, of what you're doing at OSN? Oh, oh yeah. I, I mean, um, whether it's Alex Kaplan at IBM or Andy yeah. Trainer at Walmart, um, uh, many others, um, they are publicly signaling that, um, and in fact, I think uh, Northeast University did a... Um, a study recently where they interviewed CEOs and HR leaders across the country. And 48% of them said they had either formal or informal programs in place to move to skills-based hiring. And while they still, obviously, they still are looking for a degree, they're actually, um, the number of roles that are requiring a degree for consideration is, is really decreasing. Yeah. Um, and and part of that is the skills question, and part of that is also they want to be able to move people up through their ranks um, who don't have a degree but have incredible experience with them at their company. And and I think what's important to understand about that for you and for me, because I'm also saving for my kids, right? <laughs> and I'm also giving them similar messages as you yeah. are, but like. 60% of kids today, 17 to 22 year old kids are working full time while they're yeah. going to school. Um, you know, 41% of kids today are financially independent from their parents. They want to be able to earn and learn right out of high school. And they don't want to go into a tremendous amount of debt while they do it. You know, they're very skeptical of that debt. A very large percentage of them are living under the poverty line. Mm. So we have, this, we have this massive shift in what eight, 17 to 22-year-olds look like, what, what they act like, what they want. They're looking for a value proposition, right, out of higher education more and more. Uh, and a flexible system that allows them to work while they go to school. And you have employers who are like, hey, you know, like... Degrees are pretty clunky. They're like the Duplo blocks of education. <laughs> Can you break it up into tiny little Legos and then, and then spread that out across a lifetime? Because that's what we need. We need lifelong, persistent, progressive education to support, to support our evolving um, business models. Um, and, you know, on top of that, you know, here comes COVID. And it just like accelerates the whole thing uh, and makes it even more urgent than ever before in history <laughs> to, to figure out ways to more agilely move human beings to, to opportunity and serve employers who desperately need that talent and they need it faster and they need it um, to be more dynamic. And so... So there's definitely something going on. Yeah, and and you know it's 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 always a, a tricky thing to talk about to talk about COVID and then and then talk about silver linings. However, we're having an honest discussion about it. Um, you know, at Top Coder again, it's it's drawing parallels for us. A lot of the you know we're we're an on-demand talent to get to a virtual or digital workforce, right? And we've been doing that for 20 years. Where 20 years ago it was like you're out of your mind. You're like we're not we're not doing that. And even, even in 2019, it was still like, yeah, we got a robust set of enterprise customers. And yet the majority was still like, eh, that's not for us. <laughs> you know, the majority, that's not for us. And that's in 2019. COVID hits and it's just like, they, don't, they just didn't have a choice. It's like, and the companies that were already there 
um, are, were in a far better position. The companies that already had um, crowd in, in our world, crowd as an element of their workforce strategy, not a replacement. That to me is the biggest either the biggest myth or biggest just misconception of you're going to replace this with a crowd. It's like, no, no, no. You have your full timers. They have specific domain. You're going to tap other contractors and specialists and you blend in to have, to have a blended workforce crowd. And through that you gain tremendous resiliency. So when crap does hit the fan and Oh, by the way, it hit the fan in 01, it hit the fan in 08, it hit the fan in 2020. It yeah. will hit the fan again, but if you're in a position to be way more resilient, no matter what hits you, you're just in a. You, then you're serving your, you know, you're serving your customers, your employees. It, you're just in such a better, uh, better situation. And again, I see the parallels um, so yeah. much here that in your world, it really acted as a as a huge accelerator because. Again, those barriers, to, they're really mental barriers. Like, we can't do that here. That's not how we did this. Yeah. And, and they, they literally vanished because they're like, well, now we have to. Oh, for sure. And, and uh, part of it is hard, right? I mean, yeah. you've got companies and employers with business processes and systems built around a particular approach. So there is some hard work and, and expense associated with making that shift. Yeah. Um, but I would agree with you, the the bigger piece of it and perhaps the much harder part of it is the mindset um, around what we have always done. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even and, and, if and, what we've always done has really been keeping some people out of out of play. Well, it's, you know, and, and I uh, and I agree with that. And I think it's the realization that there is a more effective way now. Yeah. And, and it's because of this, uh, because of this perfect stone that we're talking about. But there is a more effective way. Doesn't mean you abandon abandon ship on traditional. But again, much like blending in crowd into a workforce strategy, well, right. this you know skills based really should ought to be blended into uh, you know to to workforce strategies for enterprises globally, hopefully. And you know, one thing I wanted to ask you about too, Marnie, is so you know at Topcoder we're we're really about like the the streaming of talent to uh, on-demand work where you come in and out and then you might be, you might be gone. You know, you might come do an element and then mm-hmm. you're off to the next thing. Uh, yeah. Your world seems a bit more set up to help um, to augment what is traditional hiring. Um, how do you, is there a fusion between those two things? Is, is, there, is there a delineation or is it, or is there more of like a melting pot of streaming into work, uh, you know, like in a freelancer style mm-hmm. plus, uh, hiring on skills base, do do they come together or are they at odds in some way? Oh, not they are not at odds at all. I think everything we're doing contemplates a present and a future mm. where individuals are in journeys across educational experiences, across employment experiences, and it is the across moment yeah. that is the most important target of our intention, right? It's, it's not about institutions. I mean, it is, right? It helps institutions to hire the right talent at the right time. It is really about empowering individuals to own their own record of achievement, to understand that achievement in a very granular way, and to have that intelligence about what the value of that prof- their profile is. And then from that, once they can do that, one could imagine all kinds of really amazing applications to help them compass toward the next best thing, to empower them, to empower individuals. And by empowering individuals, we empower employers to get incredible talent um, while they need it. But as you say, they're not going to need it forever. Yeah. And, and, it's, and, it's, and as you said earlier, what is needed is constantly changing, hence the need for continuous skills, continuous skills, you know, not just monitoring, but understanding of those skills. And I love how you framed it up earlier too. It's like, hey, if I want to stay in this geolocation, let's say I'm in Houston, Texas, and it's obviously uh, infrastructure, environmental, oil and gas, you know, aerospace, a couple of key, key things in Houston, Texas, and I am determined to stay in that geo the the future you're painting that is that's skills um, based across the board is just such a it's almost like a relief like I actually feel in my shoulders I put myself in and now I don't live in Houston I'm I'm not in oil and gas but I'm just imagining and I feel like if that was there for me as an individual it would just make it a heck of a lot simpler and really more effective to be like oh 
if I could go do these two or three things, I put myself in the pole position because again, yeah. I'm gritty, I'm determined, I've, I've got my other skills. And, uh, yeah. and that's, that's exciting. I just think it's such a, such a beautiful future to march forward, you know, forward to. Um, I do want to wrap up with maybe one or two questions with you, Marnie, if you don't mind. I think it's been an awesome, awesome discussion. We are talking with Marnie Baker-Stein, the Chief Academic Officer at, at WGU, which is Western Governors University, and this, uh, this Open Skills Network um, consortium that they have launched and is growing over the last couple of years. I really encourage all the listeners to, to go check this out and understand how you can be involved. So, Marty, like one kind of big honking closing question is, what should, you know, folks who are in charge of workforce strategy, you know, and like future-proofing their workforces, um, what, what do you suggest they do like now? Like what are the key things they, they really ought to be doing to set, to set up their organization for the next 10 to 20 years? Uh, and I guess from your POV of a skills-based future. Uh, I think the most important thing for any any employer to do, regardless of their size, is to understand the competencies that make up a given role or function or task and to tag them to a machine-readable skills, rich skills descriptor, um, and not only do that work internally, but make sure you're surfacing that in your job descriptions. Uh, that is actually a requirement for this dream to happen. We have a lot of companies who say to higher education or other training organizations, we're not getting the talent we need. We're not getting the skills we need. The answer to that generally is, and this is true, we have no idea what skills you need. Yeah. We're, we're scraping your job descriptions. <laughs> we're talking to your HR managers. We have no way to easily understand the skills you need and prepare, and prepare um, students, earner learners to, to move in that direction. So that, that's what I think everybody needs to do. And you're seeing these big employers do it, right? Because they have big teams to do it. Um, what we're trying to encourage those big employers to do is open those libraries. Open those libraries so that smaller and medium-sized businesses can, can, can come along. Um, because uh, the more they're, they're willing to open up those rich skills descriptions to all, the more they're willing to expose the skills they need in their public job descriptions, um, all boats will rise from that. I know that might seem scary because <laughs> it may be like, oh, my special sauce is getting out there. It's not your special sauce. Thank you. Um, but it's, yeah. it's really important to the ecosystem. And it's really important for you to get the talent that you need. Uh, I, uh, you know, singing... Kind of singing songs that we've uh, we've talked about at Top Coder for a long time too, where most folks um, really try to guard those. Sometimes got, try to guard those kind of things about like this being the secret sauce thing. And at the end of the day, you really have to look yourself in the mirror and say, "Is that really our secret sauce? Is that is that really it? No, it's it's absolutely not." And again, talking about the, the parallels back to like our crowdsourcing world world. Um, whenever a company, a new customer invests in like a technology stack with TopCoder, maybe we're not there yet. Maybe we don't have that skill um, like cadre just yet where there's a, a, you know, enough of a volume of coders or technologists or designers that get a, that get a certain stack yet. Um, we'll, we'll have customers come in and then we could run what are educational challenges and maybe get 20, 30, 40, sometimes a thousand or more uh, folks basically credentialized around the stack and do it, do it very quickly. Do it, do it in a burst and say, okay, very purposely and do it within a matter of weeks or in a matter of months, which is compared to traditionally, you know, pretty much light speed. Um, and the point that you made about the, the boats rising is, guess what? Once it's established, the next company that wants to come in, that wants to access that type of skill set, it's now there. And it just keeps growing. The skill sets keep growing in a, in a community-based system. Um, and the more, it's, it's a give-to-gain thing, too. The more you could put in as an as a organization or a company, the more you could commit to it. Um, guess what? <laughs> the more people that do that, the, the better the collective wisdom gets inside. And if you're tapping that consistently, you just keep getting stronger and stronger and stronger with your ability to get to the next technology, to get to the next thing you want to go tap. And I feel there's probably a lot of um, similarities into in, you know, in, in what you're creating with, with OSN as well. 
Absolutely. That's a perfect metaphor for it. And it's so important because we humans can, we can do almost anything and these become channels of attention and focus yeah. um, intelligence that are, I, I really think benefit all. Yeah, I love it. I think it's a great, great place to leave it, Marty. If folks want to learn more about, you know, you or Open Skills Network, let's say we get a couple of folks hearing this that are they're enterprises or individuals and they, they want to understand, well, this sounds pretty good and I want to know if we could be involved in some way. What's the proper channel for them to reach out to you or someone at your, at your org? Yeah, so there are there are channels through the OpenSkillsNetwork.org website um, that take uh, that take folks directly to our team um, that is talking to folks. They spend a lot of time with people talking about what we're trying to do. They have a whole onboarding process. So if you're interested, please um, please contact us through the website, and we will we will be very responsive. We're super excited to get folks involved. Cool. I could speak to their responsiveness the, the moment I had a chance to reach out and say, hey, do you want to be on the pod? I don't know, it was maybe a couple hours later. They're like, this sounds like a good idea. And um, I, I like to say we, we proved them right because this, this was a really fun conversation and a valuable one that I think I think lots of folks will get, uh, will derive a lot of, of nuggets from and hopefully direction and passion and be like, yeah, I could go do this now. And I think, um, well, I want to thank you because I think you've been a trailblazer and I think it's a really bright future uh, that that we're, we're, we're creating here together and, and what you're up to at OSN is super intriguing. So all the best and all the, the, the next uh, things that will come for Open Skills Network and really appreciate you joining us on the, uh, the Uprising podcast today, Marty. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Of course, thank you. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe to the Upriser podcast. It's available wherever you get your podcasts, so it's pretty easy. And of course, I encourage you to follow us out on social at Upriser, U-P-R-I-S-O-R on Twitter. And also, I would encourage you to follow Topcoder at Topcoder, T-O-P-C-O-D-E-R.